Acts 9, 19 to 31, for a sermon I've entitled Transformed by Grace. I want you to follow along as I read. It says, Now for several days, he, meaning Saul, was with the disciples who were in Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed, and they were saying, Is this not the he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name, and who has come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Many days had elapsed. The Jews plotted to gather or together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. And when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to him how he had seen the Lord on the road and how he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken up boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and uh, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Now, from 2003 to 2007, ABC ran a reality television show called Extreme Makeover. Uh, In the show, they would take ordinary and sometimes homely-looking men and women Uh, They would put them on diets and exercise regimes, sometimes give them plastic surgery. They would then use professional makeup artists and hairstylists and fashion designers to give the person a a whole new look and style. Now, the beginning of these programs, you introduce to the person who's going to be the subject of the makeover, who tells about the struggles that he or she faced because of their looks. Family members add their input by telling stories of how they were teased or harsh comments were made about their sister and what she had to endure. Next, we're introduced to the doctors and the dietitians, the personal trainers uh, that will be working with the subject. And as the program goes on, uh, you hear the fears and the hopes of the person undergoing the transformation. And of course, there's moments of comic relief and lots of tears. Finally, at the end of the program, they gather the family members and friends for the unveiling. The show's host is standing before large wooden doors, double doors, and a beautiful mansion. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, you are about to witness a miracle, the miracle of Micah. The young lady walks through the doors. Her friends gasp. Her mother cries. Her father beams with pride. And everyone claps. The amazing transformation is complete. The ugly duckling has become a beautiful swan. Now, honestly, some of the people actually still look like ducklings with better makeup and wardrobe. But others, the transformation is rather startling. When you look at the photos before and after, it's hard to believe that it's the same person. But you know, even when the change is dramatic, it's still external. The outside person is transformed, but the inside, their personality, their essential self remains the same. They're the same old person with just a new look. You know, God is in the business of doing makeovers as well. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So radical is this change 
that Jesus described it as akin to being born again and starting life over again. John describes it as passing out of death and into life. That radical change begins the moment a person trusts in Jesus, but it continues in a lifelong process of being conformed little by little into the image of Christ. Now, for some, that uh, transformation is slow and steady, quiet and continual. For others, the makeover is sudden and shocking and extreme. And such, of course, was the case with Saul of Tarsus. It's not just that his conversion brought a a dramatic and sudden uh, change as he met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. It also sent him in a whole new direction with a new mission in life, and oh, what a life it was. Well, over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the conversion of Saul and uh, Jesus' commissioning of him through the laying on of the hands of Ananias. This week, we want to look at the immediate and the ongoing effects of this extreme makeover uh, of Saul, who was transformed by grace. And then we want to think about that transformational process in our own life as well. So why don't we pray and get into the text. Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy as we look at this. Uh, Give us minds that understand, ears that are willing to hear, and hearts that are willing to respond to what you have for us, because this is your living word. So bless us to that end and give us grace, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we look at these verses, I think we see five things, and the first is this, that there's an amazing turnabout. Amazing turnabout. Hey, by the way, what do you think about those roundabouts that they started putting in where we're at? Have you gotten used to them yet? Have you mastered them? They've been, uh, someone's, I'm hearing someone mumble because they got arrested, got a, <laughs> they got a ticket as a result of going the wrong way on one. Well, you know, they've uh, had those in England for decades. I think the first one they put up was 1909. You know, the first one in the United States was actually two years before that, in 1907. But around here, they're just starting to put them in. Well, the goal of these roundabouts is to keep traffic flowing freely. Well, God wants to keep the gospel flowing freely, but Saul of Tarsus was trying to shut down the highway, so to speak. He was arresting Christians and hauling them away, hoping that if he got rid of the message, or the messengers, he could get rid of the message. Well, instead of using a roundabout, God used a turnabout, an amazing turnabout. He converted the chief antagonist and persecutor of the church. We read about the effects right after in verse 19, where it says this, Now for several days he was with the disciples who were in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Have you ever heard that phrase, hit the ground running? And I'm not really sure where that came from. Some say that it came from the uh, hobos who used to ride the trains, and when they would slow down before they stopped completely, they would jump off and they would hit the ground running. Others say that it goes back to World War II with the paratroopers when they would land and hit the ground running. Well, Saul hit the ground running, so to speak. For within a few days of his being converted, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying that he is the Son of God. Now, can you imagine how shocking that must have been for those who heard it. I mean, when Jesus appeared to Ananias in a vision to tell him to go to Judah's house to speak to Saul, Ananias had already heard about Saul and knew that he was heading to Damascus with orders to arrest Christians. He wasn't the only one who knew that mission. But not knowing that he was converted, no doubt when he went into the synagogues in those cities to speak, the conversation and the introduction went probably something like this. Today... We have an honored guest with us, the distinguished Rabbi Saul of Tarsus. Saul was trained in Jerusalem under the great Rabbi Gamaliel. He will come and address this on a very weighty and urgent matter. Rabbi Saul, please speak to us. Thank you. No doubt you've heard of the growing movement called The Way, 
with their belief that Jesus of Nazareth is not only our Messiah, but shockingly the very Son of God. Well, I'm here to tell you that it's absolutely true. That's just who he is. And if you don't repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, you're going to perish. Wow. Eyes popping, jaws dropping, veins bulging, everyone gasping, women clutching their pearls, men shaking their heads in disbelief. Sarah, I think my hearing aid isn't working right. Did he say the Nazarene is the Son of God? All those hearing, it says in verse 21, continued to be amazed. And they were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on the name and who has come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? You know, there's something known as the red pill movement. The term comes from the movie The Matrix where the main character is given a choice between taking a a red pill and a blue pill. The rebel leader, Morpheus, says this, you take the red blue pill and the story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill and you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Well, Paul had a red pill moment in his encounter with the resurrected Christ. He had his eyes open to the reality of who Jesus was and transformed by taking this red pill of grace. He was not only living in a wonderland, but he himself wanted others to take the red pill to enter into this wonderland. You know, when we speak of that red pill movement in politics, it usually refers to people who are formerly on the political left who come to realize they've been living under a delusion and a deception, and now they're finally waking up. Now, sometimes you'll see politicians who switch parties, Democrat to Republican, Republican to Democrat. You know, very seldom does that have to do with changes of conviction. Most of the time, it's simply the case that they put their finger up the air and become convinced that the political winds have shifted, and they have a better chance of keeping their seat by changing their parties. But there are some real political turnabouts that take place. David Horowitz was raised by two atheistic, card-carrying communist parents who instilled their values in him. In the 60s, he was part of what was known as the New Left, and he worked with the Black Panthers. But then one of his friends and fellow supporters, a woman, was murdered, he believed, by the leaders of the Black Panthers. That not only turned him away from the organization, but from his whole political outlook. He wrote about his journey from being a left-wing activist to a political conservative in his book, Radical Son. Well, Paul's transformation from persecutor of the church to ambassador for Christ was more radical than anything David Horowitz experienced. But how do you explain it? I mean, some argue that the experience on the road to Damascus was simply an epileptic seizure or that he suffered from sunstroke. But how does that explain his dramatic turnabout for the rest of his life? Some think that he was overwhelmed by guilt and he switched sides to ease his conscience. There's something called Stockholm Syndrome where the person who's held captive starts to sympathize with and support their captor. But Paul wasn't being held captive. He was the one holding people captive. Well, how about another possibility? Perhaps the best explanation for this extreme makeover in Paul was the one that he himself gives, that he was saved by grace after an encounter with the resurrected Christ. Paul was transformed by grace. And then we read, But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. I'm going to take uh, the whole next sermon next week and show some of the verses that I think Paul would have used to support his contention that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. That brings us to our second point, though. A foiled plot. A foiled plot, and that's verses 23 to 25. Now, back in 1959, rebels led by Fidel Castro overthrew the Cuban government of Batista. The Americans were not happy because Castro was a communist who was very friendly towards the Russians. 
So President Eisenhower ordered the CIA to set up camps in Guatemala to train anti-Castro exiles with the hope of sending them back to oust Cuba, or, uh, Castro from Cuba. Well, the planned attack took place at the Bay of Pigs with 1,400 men. When Castro got wind of the invasion, he sent 20,000 troops against them who soon defeated them. Over 100 people died and 1,200 surrendered. The plot was foiled, and as a result, Fidel Castro remained in power for the next half century. By the way, the CIA has tried to overthrow and assassinate many political leaders. Well, here, starting in verse 23, we read of a plot against Saul's life and how he managed to foil it. It says, when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They also were watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. Now, by the way, when you compare what uh, Luke says here with Paul's own account of this time in his life in the book of Galatians, you find that the events occurred in the, final, uh, in the following order. First of all, he got converted on the road to Damascus, spent three days blind, after which Ananias came to see him, received his sight again, and filled with the Holy Spirit. As a result of that, he started to go out and preach in the synagogues in Damascus. Now, that went on for some time, but after that, he went off into the desert of Arabia, and he spent three years in relative obscurity. My guess is that he was working through his whole theology and his understanding of the gospel. He then came back to Damascus, began to preach in that city again, which upset some Jews enough that they plotted his death. And according to what it says in 2 Corinthians 11, 30-33, uh, the Jews got the governor of the area involved in this plot. So like many cities at that time, Damascus had high walls, and you would close the gates at night and lock them. If Paul jumped, he might break his leg. So it says his disciples took him by night and they let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. I have to say, few of us ever have to live with the knowledge that somebody's trying to kill us. <clears throat> but Paul had many who wanted him dead, and some were actively involved in assassination attempts. A number of years ago, Franklin Graham came under criticism when he said that Islam was a very wicked and evil religion and that it wasn't a religion of peace. When asked about the death threats he was receiving as a result of his comment, he said, you know what, I'm immortal until Jesus calls me home. Paul knew the truth, that truth as well. He knew what was stated in Psalm 31, 15, where David said, my time, my times are in your hands. And by the way, that should be our confidence as well. Whatever you have to face with your health, with your job situation, family struggles, whatever the government decides and the Supreme Court determines, whatever big tech controls or the pharmaceutical companies try to push, our times are still in God's hands. And we can trust him. We're also immortal until he calls us home. There are things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds the future, and I know who holds my hand. That brings us to our third point, though, a suspicious church, and this is in 26 to 27. We're caught up in a trap. I can't walk out because I love you too much, baby. Why can't you see what you're doing to me when you don't believe a word I say? We can't go on together with suspicious minds, and we can't build our dreams with suspicious minds. Well, I always assumed that song that was performed by Elvis was also written by him. I, his wife would have had plenty of reason to be suspicious of him. He cheated on uh, her many times with many women. But the song was actually written by a guy named Mark James. 
Well, when it came to the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, there were a lot of believers who had suspicious minds. Look what it says in verse 26 again. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. By the way, are you a trusting person by nature? Or are you one who tends to be suspicious of people? Now, after the last couple of years with the pandemic, media collusion, government censorship of free speech, if you're not suspicious, you're a gullible rube. Jesus told his followers that we're supposed to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. I like that t-shirt that says, I need some new conspiracy theories. All my old ones have come true. And by the way, once again, where is Ray Epps? Were the Christians in Jerusalem right to be suspicious of Saul? Wouldn't you have been? I mean, how do you know that he's legitimate? What if it was a psyops, fake news put out by the Sanhedrin to smoke out the Christians? Many people are familiar with the stories of World War II where people turned in their Jewish neighbors of this Gestapo, but what few know is that some of the people who turned them in were themselves Jewish. Probably the most notorious was a woman named Stella Kubler. She worked for the Gestapo as a catcher hunting down Jews hiding in Germany as non-Jews. The Gestapo promised that if she collaborated with them, neither she nor her parents would be deported and she would be given 300 mark, uh, Reichmarks for each Jew she betrayed. So Stella got to work contacting family members and friends, luring them in with promises of food and money and help. And afterwards, she'd rat them out to the authorities. Because of her vivacious personality and her good looks, the Nazi overlords dubbed her the blonde poison. How did the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem know for sure that Paul wasn't a brown poison? What if he was just like Stella Kubler? I mean, well, there was one man who was either very courageous or somewhat naive, we were introduced to him back in Acts chapter 4, and we see him again where he appears in verse 21, or 27, where it says this, But Barnabas took hold of him, meaning Saul, and brought him to the apostles, describing to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and how he had talked to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Now, maybe Barnabas wasn't courageous, and maybe he wasn't naive. Maybe he just thought that the grace of God is so amazing that it can transform a deadly enemy of the church into its greatest advocate for the faith. You know, the missionary William Carey lived by a motto, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Well, Barnabas believed that God could do great things like convert their enemies, and later he and Paul would attempt great things for God. You know, reading that reminded me of Chuck Colson. Some of you are familiar with him. He was uh, one of the advisors for President Nixon and got caught up in and was involved in uh, the Watergate scandal. As a result of it, he was uh, arrested and spent seven years in jail, or seven months in jail for it before he was released. Um, it was interesting because I remember even at the time, when I was young at that time, as soon as that happened, a lot of Republicans tried to distance themselves from Nixon. Matter of fact, the Minnesota Republican Party became the independent Republican Party as a result of it. And nobody was going to go near people like Chuck Colson, except for a congressman named Al Quie. Al Quie not only visited him, but he did something amazing. He called President Ford and asked him if he could serve out the rest of um, Colson's sentence, because there was a small provision in the law that said you could actually have somebody serve out a person's sentence for him. Well, they didn't allow him to do it, but that was instrumental in Colson coming to faith, his willingness to do that. Well, the fact that Barnabas was willing to reach out to a guy that nobody else would trust was a key moment in history.
That brings us to our next point, though, the continued hostility. And this is in verses 28 to 30. It says this, And he, uh, he, meaning Saul, was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. By the way, who do you know who talks a lot? I mean a whole lot, like never-ending, stopping except for to take breath. My oldest grandson was like that when he was little. Charles Spurgeon was witnessing to a woman who had a very busy tongue. She listened to the gospel eagerly, and then she said excitedly, she said, oh, Mr. Spurgeon, I think if Jesus should ever save me, he would never hear the end of it from me. Well, Paul would not and could not keep his mouth shut. After what Jesus had done in converting him and transforming him by his amazing grace, he just had to tell people. No one was ever going to hear the end of it. And even at the end of his life, he was just as overcome and more so with gratitude and love for what Jesus had done for him and saving him that day. Celebrating that transforming grace, he said this, here's a trustworthy statement worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the greatest. But for this very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the greatest of sinners, Christ might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him to receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, in the book of Revelation, Jesus praised the church of Ephesus, but then he turned to rebuke them. And he said, you've left your first love. Man, if you're a Christian, I hope you haven't lost that sense of joy and gratitude and wonder that you had when you first came to know Jesus. I hope it still glows brightly and indeed brighter than the first day that that happened. I mean, who wouldn't rejoice, though, in a new creation? Saul, (laughs) transformed by grace. Well, people who hate grace. In this case, the Jewish people who Paul was trying to convince that Jesus was indeed Israel's Messiah and the Son of God. It says in verse 29, And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned about it, they brought him down to Caesarea and then sent him off to Tarsus. Remember when we saw that Stephen was arguing with the Hellenistic Jews back in Acts chapter 6? When they couldn't handle his arguments, they dragged him before the Sanhedrin. When the Sanhedrin couldn't handle the truth that he was proclaiming, they took him out and they stoned him to death. You know, in the movie A Few Good Men, a character Jack Nicholson is on trial and he's being questioned by the prosecuting attorney. And at one point, the prosecuting attorney says, I want the truth! And Nicholson's character says, You want the truth? You can't handle the truth! When Jesus was speaking to some of his countrymen who claimed to be his followers, he turned and said to him, You're of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie from his own nature, for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? He who's of God hears the word of God. For this reason you don't hear me, because you're not of the truth. Then the Hellenistic Jews, who Paul was arguing with, they claimed to be the people of God, but they showed they were really the children of the devil because they rejected the truth that Paul was bringing to them. You know, we have to engage in apologetics. That's why we teach classes on how to witness We're commanded in the scripture to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts and to be always ready to give a defense to anyone who asks us to give an account for the hope that we have within us, but to do it with gentleness and reverence. 1 Peter 3.15. But you know, unless God opens the person's mind and heart to the good news, they will reject the message 
And at times, they'll even persecute the messenger. That brings us to our last point, though, peace and growth. That's verse 31. Now, you might have thought that the next thing you'd read about is another persecution breaking out against the church. I mean, evidently, Paul was the lightning rod who more than anyone else got his countrymen charged up. Not surprising. I mean, from their perspective, he was not only a Benedict Arnold who had betrayed the cause by going over to the other side, but the fact was that he was an effective witness, and because of that, he was a threat to those Jews in Jerusalem. So once he was whisked away from the area, things settled down. David Williams, in his commentary, informs us that at that time there was a lot of upheaval for the Jews in Judea. He points out that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, had engaged in all kinds of pressing matters at the time. First of all, Caiaphas had been deposed as high priest and replaced by the Roman governor, Vitalius. He installed a man named Jonathan, and a short time later, another, his brother, Theophilus. After also Caligula, uh, the emperor, was uh, seceded Tiberius, and he was far less sympathetic to the Jews than his predecessors. Also, at the same time, some Jews in the city of Jamnia in Israel tore down an altar that was put up to celebrate and praise the emperor. And as a result, Caligula said he was going to put up an altar in the very temple of God, a statue to himself. Well, Herod Agrippa II intervened and uh, the emperor called it off. So the tensions were really high and the religious leaders were distracted and engaged with other concerns. They didn't really have the time and the energy at this point to persecute the church. And so we read in verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord. In the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Now, as believers, we need to remember that whatever the crisis Whatever the headlines coming from Fox or CNN, God is still at work in his church so that we can go on in the fear of the Lord, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and continue to increase. And that's what we want to see. We want to see the church increase. We want to see it increase in numbers with people coming to faith as they respond to the good news. The good news that anyone, no matter how sinful or rebellious they've been, can be forgiven and reconciled to God through the death of Christ on the cross. But for that increase to happen, the message needs to get out. And we're the ones who proclaim the gospel message with its transforming power, which alone can cause these extreme makeovers, which changes a person from a hater of God to a follower of Christ. We, you, need to tell people about Jesus. But after people come to faith, we want them to grow in that faith. So the transformation will continue and deepen. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We renew our minds, our way of thinking, as we hear, learn, and act upon the truth found in the Scripture. Listen carefully. Your growth as a Christian is directly related to the amount of God's Word that you take in and act upon. You need to be in church on Sunday morning. Sunday school. Bible studies with others, reading your own Bible daily. Peter said it this way, he said, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word so that you may grow with respect to your salvation. We want to grow so that transformation of grace continues in our own lives. We want to get the gospel out so that transformation can begin in others. And we're going to need the grace of God to do that, to play our part. Let's pray. Our Father in God, 
We sing songs about tell me the story of Jesus, but that's really what it comes down to, telling people the truth of what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ, who came into the world to live a perfectly righteous life and then offer up that life as a sacrifice for sin so that anyone who trusts in him will be given eternal life as a gift, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Father, we have the best message that anyone could ever give. But Father, we have to be gripped by it like Paul was and then proclaim it like he did. And we ask for your help in doing so. So bless your people. Give us the grace that we need. For we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.